0: Section 20 of Report of the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy. The Warren Commission Report. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Report of the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy. The Warren Commission Report by the President's Commission on the Assassination of President Kennedy. Chapter 5, Detention and Death of Oswald, Part 1. Lee Harvey Oswald spent almost all of the last 48 hours of his life in the police and courts building, a graystone structure in downtown Dallas that housed the headquarters of the Dallas Police Department and the city jail. Following his arrest early Friday afternoon, Oswald was brought immediately to this building and remained there until Sunday morning, November 24th, when he was scheduled to be transferred to the county jail. At 1121 that morning, in full view of millions of people watching on television, Oswald was fatally wounded by Jack Ruby, who emerged suddenly from the crowd of newsmen and policemen witnessing the transfer and fired a single shot at Oswald. Whether the killing of Oswald was part of a conspiracy involving the assassination of President Kennedy is considered in Chapter 6. Aside from that question, the occurrences within the police and courts building between November 22nd and 24th raise other important issues concerning the conduct of law enforcement officials, the responsibilities of the press, the rights of accused persons, and the administration of criminal justice in the United States. The commission has therefore deemed it necessary to determine the facts concerning Oswald's detention and death, and to evaluate the actions and responsibilities of the police and press involved in these events. Treatment of Oswald in custody. The focal center of the police and courts building during Oswald's detention was the third floor, which housed the main offices of the Dallas Police Department. The public elevators on this floor opened into a lobby, midpoint of a corridor, that extended along the length of the floor for about 140 feet. At one end of this seven-foot wide corridor were the offices occupied by Chief of Police, Jesse E. Curry, and his immediate subordinates. At the other end was a small press room that could accommodate only a handful of reporters. Along this corridor were other police offices, including those of the major detective bureaus. Between the press room and the lobby was the complex of offices belonging to the Homicide and Robbery Bureau headed by Captain J. Will Fritz. Chronology. The policeman who seized Oswald at the Texas Theater arrived with him at the police department building at about 2 p.m. and brought him immediately to the third floor offices of the Homicide and Robbery Bureau to await the arrival of Captain Fritz from the Texas School Book Depository. After about 15 or 20 minutes, Oswald was ushered into the office of Captain Fritz for the first of several interrogation sessions. At 4.05 p.m., he was taken to the basement assembly room for his first lineup while waiting outside the lineup room oswald was searched and five cartridges and other items were removed from his pockets after the lineup at about 4:20 oswald was returned to captain fritz's office for further questioning 2 hours later at 6:20 p.m. oswald was taken downstairs for a second lineup and returned to captain fritz's office within 15 minutes for additional interrogation. Shortly after 7 p.m., Captain Fritz signed a complaint charging Oswald with the murder of Patrolman Tippett. Oswald was formerly arraigned, for example, advised of the charges at 7.10 p.m. before the Justice of Peace, David L. Johnston, who came to Captain Fritz's office for the occasion. After a third lineup at about 7.40 p.m., Oswald was returned to Fritz's office. About an hour later, after further questioning, Oswald's fingerprints and palm prints were taken and a paraffin test administered in Fritz's office, after which the questioning resumed. At 11.26 p.m., Fritz signed the complaint charging Oswald with the murder of President Kennedy. Shortly after midnight, detectives took Oswald to the basement assembly room for an appearance of several minutes before the members of the press. At about 12.20 a.m., Oswald was delivered to the jailer, who placed him in a maximum security cell on the fifth floor. His cell was the center one in a block of three cells that were separated from the remainder of the jail area. The cells on either side of Oswald were empty, and a guard was nearby whenever Oswald was present. Shortly after 1.30 a.m., Oswald was brought to the Identification Bureau on the fourth floor and arraigned before Justice of the Peace Johnston, this time for the murder of President Kennedy. Questioning resumed in Fritz's office on Saturday morning at about 10.25 a.m., and the session lasted nearly an hour and ten minutes. Oswald was then returned to his cell for an hour, and at 12.35 p.m., he was brought back to Fritz's office for an additional half hour of questioning. From one hundred ten to one hundred thirty p.m., Oswald's wife and mother visited him in the fourth floor visiting area. At one hundred forty p.m., he attempted to call an attorney in New York. He appeared in another lineup at 2.15 p.m. At 2.45 p.m., with Oswald's consent, a member of the Identification Bureau, obtained fingernail scrapings and specimens of hair from him. He returned to the fourth floor at 3.30 p.m. for a 10-minute visit with his brother, Robert. Between 4 and 4.30 p.m., Oswald made two telephone calls to Mrs. Ruth Payne at her home in Irving. At about 5.30 p.m., he was visited by the president of the Dallas Bar Association, with whom he spoke for about 5 minutes from 6 to 7:15 p.m. Oswald was interrogated once again in Captain Fritz's office and then returned to his cell. At 8 p.m. he called the Payne residence again and asked to speak to his wife, but Mrs. Payne told him that his wife was no longer there. Oswald was signed out of jail at 9:30 a.m. on Sunday, November 24th, and taken to Captain Fritz's office for a final round of questioning. The transfer party left Fritz's office at about 11.15 a.m. At 11.21 a.m., Oswald was shot. He was declared dead at Parkland Hospital at 1.07 p.m. Interrogation Sessions During the period between 2.30 p.m. on Friday afternoon and 11.15 a.m. Sunday morning, Oswald was interrogated for a total of approximately 12 hours, Though subject to intermittent questioning, for more than seven hours on Friday, Oswald was given eight to nine hours to rest that night. On Saturday, he was questioned for a total of only three hours during three interrogation sessions, and on Sunday, he was questioned for less than two hours. These interrogations are discussed in chapter four. Captain Fritz's office, within which the interrogations took place, was a small room, 14 feet by nine and a half feet in size. In addition to the policemen guarding the prisoner, those present usually included Dallas detectives, investigators from the FBI and the Secret Service, and occasionally other officials, particularly a post office inspector and the U.S. Marshal. See statements in Appendix 11 as many as seven or eight people crowded into the small office. In all, more than 25 different persons participated in or were present at some time during interrogations. Captain Fritz, who conducted most of the interrogations, was frequently called from the room. He said, I don't believe there was any time when I went through a very long period without having to step to the door or step outside to get a report from some pair of officers Or to give them additional assignments. In his absence, others present would occasionally question Oswald. The interrogators differ on whether the confusion prevailing in the main third floor corridor penetrated Fritz's office and affected the atmosphere within. Oswald's processions through the third floor corridor, described more fully below, tended, in Fritz's opinion, to keep Oswald upset and the remarks and questions of newsmen sometimes caused him to become annoyed. Despite the confusion that frequently prevailed, Oswald remained calm most of the time during the interrogations, according to Captain Fritz. You know, I didn't have trouble with him. If we would just talk to him quietly, like we are talking right now. We talked all right, until I asked him a question that meant something. Every time I asked him a question that meant something, that would produce evidence he immediately told me he wouldn't tell me about it, and he seemed to anticipate what I was going to ask. Special Agent James W. Brookhout, who represented the FBI at most of the interrogations, stated, I think generally you might say, anytime you asked a question that would be pertinent to the investigation, that would be the type of question he would refuse to discuss. The number of people in the interrogation room and the tumultuous atmosphere throughout the third floor made it difficult for the interrogators to gain Oswald's confidence and to encourage him to be truthful. As Chief Curry has recognized in his testimony, we were violating every principle of interrogation. It was just against all principles of good interrogation practice. Oswald's legal rights. All available evidence indicates that Oswald was not subjected to any physical hardship during the interrogation sessions or at any time while he was in custody. He was fed and allowed to rest. When he protested on Friday against being handcuffed from behind, the handcuffs were removed and he was handcuffed in front. Although he made remarks to newsmen about desiring a shower and demanding his civil rights, Oswald did not complain about his treatment to any of the numerous police officers and other persons who had much to do with him during the two days of his detention. As described in Chapter 4, Oswald received a slight cut over his right eye and a bruise under his left eye during the scuffle in the Texas Theater with the arresting officers, three of whom were injured and required medical treatment. These marks were visible to all who saw him during the two days of his detention and to millions of television viewers. Before the first questioning session on Friday afternoon, Fritz warned Oswald that he was not compelled to make any statement and that statements he did make could be used against him. About five hours later, he was arraigned for the Tippett murder, and within an additional six and a half hours, he was arraigned for the murder of President Kennedy. On each occasion, the Justice of the Peace advised Oswald of his right to obtain counsel and the right to remain silent. Throughout the period of detention, however, Oswald was not represented by counsel. At the Friday midnight press conference in the basement assembly room, he made the following remarks. Oswald. Well, I was questioned by Judge Johnston. However, I protested at that time that I was not allowed legal representation during that very short and sweet hearing. I really don't know what the situation is about. Nobody has told me anything except that I am accused of, of murdering a policeman. I know nothing more than that, and I do request someone to come forward to give me legal assistance. Question. Did you kill the president? Answer. No, I have not been charged with that. In fact, nobody has said that to me yet. The first thing I heard about it was when the newspaper reporters in the hall asked me that question. Question. Mr. Oswald, how did you hurt your eye? Answer, a policeman hit me. At this time, Oswald had been arraigned only for the murder of Patrolman Tippett, but questioning by Captain Fritz and others had been substantially concerned with Oswald's connection with the assassination. On Friday evening, representatives of the American Civil Liberties Union visited the police department to determine whether Oswald was being deprived of counsel. They were assured by police officials and Justice of the Peace Johnston that Oswald had been informed of his rights and was being allowed to seek a lawyer. On Saturday, Oswald attempted several times to reach John Apt, a New York lawyer, by phone, but with no success. In the afternoon, he called Ruth Payne and asked her to try to reach Apt for him, but she too failed. Later in the afternoon, H. Lewis Nichols, President of the Dallas Bar Association visited Oswald in his cell and asked him whether he wanted the association to obtain a lawyer for him. Oswald declined the offer, stating a first preference for Apt and a second preference for a lawyer from the American Civil Liberties Union. As late as Sunday morning, according to postal inspector Harry D. Holmes, Oswald said that he preferred to get his own lawyer. Activity of Newsmen Within an hour of Oswald's arrival at the police department on November 22nd, it became known to newsmen that he was a possible suspect in the slaying of President Kennedy, as well as in the murder of Patrolman Tippett. At least as early as 3.26 p.m., a television report carried this information. Reporters and cameramen flooded into the building and congregated in the corridor of the third floor joining those few who had been present when Oswald first arrived. On the third floor, Felix McKnight, editor of the Dallas Times-Herald, who handled press arrangements for the president's visit, estimated that within 24 hours of the assassination, more than 800 representatives of news media were in Dallas, including correspondents from foreign newspapers and press associations. District Attorney Henry M. Wade, thought that the crowd in the third-floor hallway itself may have numbered as many as 300. Most estimates, including those on examination of videotapes, place upwards of 100 newsmen and cameramen in the third-floor corridor of the police department by the evening of November 22nd. In the words of an FBI agent who was present, the conditions at the police station were, not too much unlike Grand Central Station at rush hour, maybe like the Yankee Stadium during the World Series games. In the lobby of the third floor, television cameramen set up two large cameras and floodlights in strategic positions that gave them a sweep of the corridor in either direction. Technicians stretched their television cables into and out of offices, running some of them out of the windows of a deputy chief's office and down the side of the building. Men with newsreel cameras, still cameras, and microphones, more mobile than the television cameramen, moved back and forth, seeking information and opportunities for interviews. Newsmen wandered into the offices of other bureaus, located on the third floor, sat on desks, and used police telephones. Indeed, one reporter admits, hiding a telephone behind a desk so that he would have exclusive access to it if something developed. By the time Chief Curry returned to the building in the middle of the afternoon from Love Field, where he had escorted President Johnson to Parkland Hospital, he found that there was just pandemonium on the third floor. The news representatives, he testified, were jammed into the North Hall of the third floor, which are the offices of the Criminal Investigation Division. The television trucks, there were several of them around the city hall, I went into my administrative offices. I saw cables coming through the administrative assistant office and through the deputy chief of traffic through his office. And running through the hall, they had a live TV set up on the third floor, and it was a bedlam of confusion. According to special agent Winston G. Lawson of the Secret Service, at least by six or seven o'clock, The reporters and cameramen were quite in evidence up and down the corridors, cameras on tripods, the sound equipment, people with still cameras, motion picture type hand cameras, all kinds of people with tape recorders. And they were trying to interview people, anybody that belonged in police headquarters that might know anything about Oswald. The corridor became so jammed that policemen and newsmen had to push and shove if they wanted to get through, stepping over cables, wires, and tripods. The crowd in the hallway was so dense that district attorney Wade found it a strain to get the door open to get into the homicide office. According to Lawson, you had to literally fight your way through the people to get up and down the corridor. A witness who was escorted into the homicide offices on Saturday afternoon related that he tried to get by the reporters stepping over television cables, and you couldn't hardly get by. They would grab you and wanted to know what you were doing down here, even with the detectives one in front and one behind you. Television cameras continued to record the scene on the third floor as some of the newsmen kept vigil through the night such police efforts as there were to control the newsmen were unavailing. Captain Glenn D. King, administrative assistant to Chief Curry, witnessed efforts to clear an aisle through the hallway, but related that, this was a constant battle because of the number of newsmen who were there. They would move back into the aisleway that had been cleared. They interfered with the movement of people who had to be there. According to one detective, they would be asked to stand back and stay back, but it wouldn't do much good and they would push forward and you had to hold them off physically. The detective recalled that on one occasion when he was escorting a witness through the corridor, he stopped and looked down and there was a joker with a camera stuck between his legs taking pictures. Forrest v. Sorrels of the Secret Service had the impression that the press and television people just took over. Police control over the access of other than newsmen to the third floor was of limited but increasing effectiveness after Oswald's arrival at the police department. Initially, no steps were taken to exclude unauthorized persons from the third floor corridor, but late Friday afternoon, Assistant Chief Charles Batchelor stationed guards at the elevators and the stairway to prevent the admission of such persons. He also directed the records room in the basement to issue passes after verification by the bureaus involved, to people who had legitimate business on the third floor. Throughout the three days of Oswald's detention, the police were obliged to continue normal business in all five bureaus located along the third floor hallway. Thus, many persons, relatives of prisoners, complainants, witnesses, had occasion to visit police offices on the third floor on business unrelated to the investigation of the assassination. Newsmen seeking admission to the third floor were required to identify themselves by their personal press cards. However, the department did not follow its usual procedure of checking the authenticity of press credentials. Captain King felt that this would have been impossible in light of the atmosphere that existed over there, the tremendous pressures that existed, the fact that telephones were ringing constantly, that there were droves of people in there, The fact that the method by which you positively identify someone, it's not easy. Police officers on the third floor testified that they carefully checked all persons for credentials, and most newsmen indicated that after Bachelor imposed security, they were required to identify themselves by their press cards. Special Agent Sorrells of the Secret Service stated that he was requested to present credentials on some of his visits to the third floor. However, other newsmen apparently went unchallenged during the entire period before Oswald was killed, although some of them were wearing press badges on their lapels, and some may have been known to the police officers. According to some reporters and policemen, people who appeared to be unauthorized were present on the third floor after security procedures were instituted, and videotapes seemed to confirm their observations. Jack Ruby was present on the third floor on Friday night. Assistant Chief of Police N.T. Fisher testified that even on Saturday, anybody could come up with a plausible reason for going to one of the third floor bureaus and was able to get in. Oswald and the Press. When the police car bringing Oswald from the Texas Theater drove into the basement of police headquarters at about 2 p.m. on Friday, Some reporters and cameramen, principally from local papers and stations, were already on hand. The policemen formed a wedge around Oswald and conducted him to the elevator, but several newsmen crowded into the elevator with Oswald and the police. When the elevator stopped at the third floor, the cameramen ran ahead down the corridor and then turned around and backed up, taking pictures of Oswald as he was escorted toward the Homicide and Robbery Bureau office. According to one escorting officer, some six or seven reporters followed the police into the Bureau office. From Friday afternoon, when Oswald arrived in the building, until Sunday, newspaper reporters and television cameras focused their attention on the homicide office. In full view and within arm's length of the assembled newsmen, Oswald traversed the 20 feet of corridor between the homicide office and the locked door leading to the jail elevator at least 15 times after his initial arrival. The jail elevator, sealed off from public use, took him to his fifth floor cell and to the assembly room in the basement for lineups and the Friday night news conference. On most occasions, Oswald's escort of three to six detectives and policemen had to push their way through the newsmen who sought to surround them. Although the Dallas Press normally did not take pictures of a prisoner without first obtaining permission of the police, who generally asked the prisoner, this practice was not followed by any of the newsmen with Oswald. Generally, when Oswald appeared, The newsmen turned their cameras on him, thrust microphones at his face, and shouted questions at him. Sometimes he answered. Reporters in the forefront of the throng would repeat his answers for the benefit of those behind them who could not hear. On Saturday, however, in response to police admonitions, the reporters exercised more restraint and shouted fewer questions at Oswald when he passed through the corridor. Oswald's most prolonged exposure occurred at the midnight press conference on Friday night. In response to demands of newsmen, District Attorney Wade, after consulting with Chief Curry and Captain Fritz, had announced shortly before midnight that Oswald would appear at a press conference in the basement assembly room. An estimated 70 to 100 people, including Jack Ruby and other unauthorized persons, crowded into the small downstairs room. No identification was required. The room was so packed that Deputy Chief M.W. Stevenson and Captain Fritz, who came down to the basement after the crowd had assembled, could not get in and were forced to remain in the doorway. Oswald was brought into the room shortly after midnight. Curry had instructed policemen not to permit newsmen to touch Oswald or get close to him, but no steps were taken to shield Oswald from the crowd. Captain Fritz had asked that Oswald be placed on the platform used for lineups so that he could be more easily removed if anything happened. Chief Curry, however, insisted that Oswald stand on the floor in front of the stage, where he was also in front of the one-way nylon cloth screen, customarily used to prevent a suspect from seeing those present in the room. This was done because cameramen had told Curry that their cameras would not photograph well through the screen. Curry had instructed the reporters that they were not to ask any questions and try to interview Oswald in any way, but when he was brought into the room, immediately they began to shoot questions at him and shove microphones in his face. It was difficult to hear Oswald's answers above the uproar. Cameramen stood on the tables to take pictures, and others pushed forward to get close-ups. The noise and confusion mounted as reporters shouted at each other to get out of the way, and cameramen made frantic efforts to get into position for pictures. After Oswald had been in the room only a few minutes, Chief Curry intervened and directed that Oswald be taken back to the jail because, he testified, the newsman tried to overrun him. End of section 20